Welcome back, friends, to the Founded on Christ podcast. As always, there is the email address, foundedonchristpodcast at gmail.com, where you can send in any testimonies or any thoughts or feelings you have on the podcast. Uh, Keep that opportunity open to you. And uh, thank you, everyone, for coming back and, and continuing to support this podcast. And I will jump right in to it today. Um, I've been thinking about foundations. Uh, obviously, it's the Founded on Christ podcast, so that is something uh, I felt very strongly about when first making the podcast, and it's something I continue to think about. Now, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the foundation of the things that we know what we understand. And that may sound a little abstract. So I'm going to give an example here that I've heard recently and a few actually, uh, but to illustrate this and let's, let's see where we get. Okay. So we all know the story of Nephi building the boat. All right. He, he gets the, Instruction from the Lord to build a boat, not after the manner of men, but after a curious workmanship. He builds it. It's a little bit of a process with Lemuel. They get on the boat and they get on their way. Now they get out to sea and Laman and Lemuel kind of return back to their raucous, uh, explosive personalities and they start to be offensive to the spirit. And Nephi speaks out against them, calling them to repent. Well, what happens? I want right now, you know, without looking at the scriptures, tell me what happens in your in your brains. What happens to Nephi? What do they do to Nephi? Where do they do that to Nephi? I imagine a lot of us are thinking that Nephi gets tied up and he gets tied to the mast of the ship for various reasons, <laughs> uh, cartoons, other movies we may have seen, he always gets tied to the mast of the ship, right? Well, what if I were to tell you that that is not scripturally accurate? We're going to go to First Nephi chapter 18, verse 11. And it came to pass that Laman and Lemuel did take me and bind me with cords, and they did treat me with much harshness, harshness. Nevertheless, the Lord did suffer it that he might show forth his power unto the fulfilling of his word, which he had spoken concerning the wicked. And it came to pass that after they had bound me insomuch that I could not move, the compass which had been prepared for the Lord did cease to work. So, as you listen to that, there's nothing about tying Nephi to the mast of the ship. In fact, there is strong indications that because this ship was built after the manner that was curious, it wasn't after the manner of men, there may not be a mast on this ship at all. Um, there's actually probably, considering the uh, brother of Jared and Noah, there's probably actually a stronger indication that this boat was probably more like that, because that would A, be curious to men, and be after God's instruction, and he's done it before. He's had other people do a similar thing. So, it's interesting, though, that all of us, including myself, I thought for sure he was tied to the mast of the ship. So where does that come from? What's the foundation for that understanding? 
It certainly wasn't in the scriptures. It's cultural. It's and not all of it is uh, harmful or ill-meaning because there is there is some indication here where it talks about how he was bound in so much that he could not move. So some people could look at that and go, okay, how could he be bound so that he couldn't move? Well, did they tie him to something so he couldn't move? Because if he was just tied up and bound, you know, left on the deck, does that mean he still move? Who knows? But that's it's a fair guess, right? And I could see why someone would make that idea. And then if you're going to represent this, right, in some sort of way, you want to tell this story other than just reading it, you have to pick a lane, right? You have to decide to go forward, which I get it. That's fine. But where does our understanding of that come from? And guaranteed, <laughs> for me, it was the same way. That was not scripturally founded. And I thought I was confident that that's the way it was. Another few more examples. And some of you probably already heard these because of uh, the Who Killed Joseph Smith uh, documentary where they bring these two up. Sam Weston talks about these and he's, uh, let's see, he's the Church History Museum curator, runner, operator. He, he, has, a, he has a very important job <laughs> at uh, one of the Church History Museums. And uh, <clears throat> he talks about how when Joseph... Or sorry, yeah, when Joseph shows the plates to the eight witnesses, I want everyone to think about that. Think about how Joseph showed it to them. And a good portion of people, especially I would say the earlier generation, say, okay, well, he came and he put it on a stump of a tree and he showed them all the plates. Well, let's look at the the account given. So be known unto all nation, kindreds, tongues, and people, unto whom this work shall come, this is the testimony of the eight witnesses, that Joseph Smith Jr., the translator of this work, hath shown unto us the place of the plates of which hath been spoken, which have the appearance of gold, as many of the leaves as the said Smith have translated, we did handle with our hands, we also saw the engravings thereon, all of which was the appearance of ancient work and of curious workmanship. And this we bear record with this with words of soberness that he that he that the said Smith has shown unto us, for we have seen and hefted, and know of a surety that this, the said Smith had got the place which he has spoken. And we give our names unto the world to witness unto the world which has seen, and we lie not, God bearing witness of it. Nowhere in there does it say that Joseph put the plates on the stump of a tree to show them. But there is paintings out there displaying that very thing right? And so then people get the idea, oh, okay, that's right. He showed him on a stump, right? It was a stump of a tree. That's where he showed him. Okay. Moving forward. Uh, Samuel the Lamanite, right? Let's talk about Samuel preaching on the wall. Can you picture that wall? I'm sure you can. Does that wall have any specific, uh, how should I put it? Cultural, uh, specifications about it to tell you where it's at. If you're thinking of the picture I'm thinking of, and I guarantee you are, there is what Aztec Mayan artwork on this wall, right? And you can, you can all envision this huge stone wall, but let's go to the scriptures. Let's see. And it came to pass, this is Helaman 13, four, and it came to pass, they would not suffer that he should enter into the city. Therefore he went up, got up on the wall thereof and stretched forth his hand and cried with a loud voice and prophesied unto the people whatsoever thing the Lord put into his heart. 
That's all we get <laughs> for the description of that wall, right? So once again, giving a little lateral attitude here for people who have no idea and just trying to display the situation. And I love, don't get me wrong, I love that poster. Or yeah, I guess you call it a poster, that painting. <laughs> it's It has strong emotion and uh, it always reminds me of, of the courage and the the faith that Sammy the Lamanite, and remember faith is acting, receiving, and sorry, receiving, acting on revelation. So the, the faith of Sammy the Lamanite to get up on that wall, like it's really well captured in there, but does it create these false narratives, even if it's not intentional, right? That is, that is, something that happens to us all the time. And we don't even realize it, especially as members of the church. We get a lot of accoutrements. We get a lot of uh, buttresses, uh, a lot of supplemental foundational helps from our culture, from members of the church, from those, well, sometimes well-meaning, sometimes not, uh, people who try to supplement our understanding of the scriptures and the stories that are told therein. And so another example of this, and this one's big for me, I want you to think about the war in heaven. All right. Now, how many were drawn away by Satan in the war in heaven? And I imagine a lot of you are thinking a third right now. And if you're, if you were listening to the years to hear podcast, uh, we've hit this one pretty hard. So hopefully those who've come over are probably already shouting what's wrong with that. If you look at the scriptures and I'm just going to read one, but there's others that talk about it too. Uh, this is doctrine and covenants 29 verse 36, well, in 37, it says, And it came to pass that Adam, being tempted of the devil, for behold, the devil was before Adam, for he rebelled against me, saying, Give me thine honor, which is my power, and also a third part of the host of heaven turned he away from, from me because of their agency. And they were thrust down, and thus came the devil and his angels. Okay, very important. Which in, And also a third part. It doesn't say a third period. And if you look, and I've looked, you cannot find anywhere where it says that he drew part, drew away a third of the host of heaven. It says that he drew away a third part. They are not numbered. We actually don't know how many people were drawn to Satan in the war in heaven. In the, the first battle of Gog and Magog, the, the eternal battle, the that's been going on, Satan drew away a third part, which means that there was the people were divided into three different sections, and one part of that followed Lucifer. And I imagine, now it's not stated here, and once again, this is, I'm doing the very thing that I'm talking about. I'm going to give some sort of explanation, and it'll be up to you guys to decide where to found that in and how to categorize it, but a third part to me implies that there's three different groups of people and my understanding of, of the war in heaven, I would imagine those who were valiant and forthright for the cause of savior of our savior and heavenly father, those who were on the fence or weren't forthright either way. And those who had totally uh, gone with Lucifer and his plan, three different groups. And so he drew away a third part. And 
following this one even further, how many people right now thinking of that third part of heaven are saying those were all male, that there was not a single female in that group? I imagine there's at least a few saying, yeah, that's what I've been told. Where does that come from? I cannot find any scriptural basis to say that that third part was completely made up of men. There might be some indications, some places, for those who know where to look, but at the best, it's a guess. And it's interesting because that concept actually really doesn't really get taught until the concept of polygamy is being taught rampantly in the church. And then it becomes this understanding, this backing up of the concept of polygamy. Oh, because the third that left heaven, you know, and once again, a third, people aren't even really thinking about it, but they'll say, oh yeah, because, you know, there's two thirds of people there and a whole third of the, you know, of just men left. And so we have to, we have to get companionship with all these women. And that's why we have polygamy. And for anyone who's studied deeply the doctrine of eternal lives and knows the true nature of ascension and how we will someday step into the role of Heavenly Father, the, the truth of what's taught at the King Follett sermon and the Sermon at the Grove, both sermons taught by Joseph, we have partials of the second one, the Sermon in the Grove, I don't think, I think we might have the full King Follett sermon. I'm not 100% on that. But you go read those and the understanding of how we ascend, you realize that that is justification that is not needed. And the whole justification is built to support something that we have no scriptural foundation in. (laughs) So, moving forward. How we move forward in life. Where is our knowledge founded on? Obviously, this is the Founded on Christ podcast. I believe everything should be founded upon the Savior. Everything, our, our understanding, our, our house of faith, you know, our, our spiritual, intellectual temple of knowledge and of light should be built upon the Savior. The scriptures form a great basis for understanding what is built on Christ, how to build on Christ. So, I mean, these are some very, some of them, you know, more fun, but there's some serious stuff here that we need to consider. What is our, our understanding of what repentance is? What is our understanding of the second comforter? Many people will tell you that the second comforter is not something you can attain in this life. Where's the scriptural foundation for that? Where is it founded? I think a good test for all of us to find out how secure we are in the Savior is to think about all the things that we think we know. And if those things were to be rattled, how we would react because of where that foundation is, where our understanding is. DNC 45, 56, and 57 kind of go along with this. It says, And and at that that day, when I shall come in my glory, 
shall the parable be fulfilled which I spake unto spake concerning the ten virgins. For they are they they that are wise and have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived, verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. Many times we are told that if we quote unquote follow the prophet or quote unquote the majority of the twelve, we will not be led astray. Where is the foundation for that? Where, scripturally, can you find that information and rely on that? Because from what I'm reading here, DNC 45, the only people who are going to be wise and have received truth are those who have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide. Does that mean that you have to throw out everything that the 15 say and you're relying just on the Spirit? Not necessarily. But is that saying you go the other way? Can you throw out what the Spirit's telling you and rely wholly on them? Not according to the Scriptures. This concept that... Well, let, let me say it this way. What, how do we know what a prophet is? How do we define a prophet? How is that information founded in our systems and who we are? And I imagine, unfortunately... There's probably a, a pretty good spread of how we define a prophet throughout the church. And that's because most of us, we've taken what we've been given, right? But how many of us have gone to the scriptures and found out what they are? Can, is it possible for a prophet to lead people astray? Well, according to some sources... They would say no. But if you go to Jeremiah 23, there is some there's some strong indications about the idea that prophets cannot lead people astray. And if you know anything about Jeremiah, Jeremiah being a prophet, or yeah, a prophet uh, at the time, but the Deuteronomists, who were basically seizing control of the Hebrew religion to turn it into the Jewish religion, were wielding a strong iron hand, and Jeremiah was speaking out against them. And in so many cases, when you read Jeremiah, and once again, Lehi, he's in the same boat. If you read 1 Nephi chapter 1, you get some indication about this with Lehi. The spiritual ruling class at that time were espousing doctrines that weren't in harmony with the Bible, and in fact, were changing the Bible, removing plain and precious truths from it. So if you read, I'm just going to read a few verses, a few hints of stuff here from Jeremiah 23. <clears throat> 23 verse 20. The anger of the Lord shall not return until he executed and until he had performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you shall consider it perfectly. All right, so thinking about that last sentence there, the latter days you shall consider it perfectly, meaning we shall see these things. Verse 23, I am, am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God far off? Am I, am I a God who is personally involved in the lives of my children? How long shall this be the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are the prophets of deceit of their own heart. 28, the prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. 
What is chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Therefore, moving on to verse 30, Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. All right, that's just a taste <laughs> of that chapter. I I would say if if you have the stomach for it and you're ready for it, go read Jeremiah 23. That'll give you a strong indication that, yes, spiritual leaders who are called above you can be weak and fallible, and they can technically lead you down a wrong path if you're not careful. I know that in the church, this is a hot button topic. This has got everybody riled up, and it's because we have spent so much of our time relying on the prophet to tell us what to do all the time that the thought that he could be wrong in some aspect is near impossible for us to consider. I just, if that is, if it's causing you such ire, I would ask you to go look at the scriptures and see what the scriptures say on the matter. Now, granted, there are scriptures where it talks about the need of prophets. You know, surely the Lord God will do nothing save he reveal his secrets to the servants, the prophets, right? That's another scripture. So we need to make sure that we're assessing both of the information, all of the scriptures together, looking at them as one complete whole, where that we don't rest the scriptures. We're actually studying them. And then ultimately taking the scriptures at their word, asking God getting the truth from him, what greater witness can you have than from God? Once you've studied all the information, you can take it to Heavenly Father. He will give you the witness. And that, when that information is founded on Christ, that is the most secure place it can be. Does that mean you're going to get everything perfectly? No. Heavens, no. Does that mean... We're entering into a scary situation because we have seen people who've done horrible things in the name of God, right? Claiming that they received revelation to do so. To be fair, yes, we are going out on a limb here. We're, we are pushing ourselves to be agents to act. And yes, the other side, Satan answers prayers as well. But I will give a full hearty witness that those that take the time to seek discernment and understand the spirit, to check in with Father about the things they receive, and if they were actually from him, I promise you, you can get those answers to your heart. I promise you that he will not leave you without comfort, that you will be led by him. And all of these, the winds and the shafts in the whirlwind, may beat upon you, but you will be steady upon the rock of Christ, upon his truth. As you read the scriptures and really read them with this understanding that despite the fact that there are good men and we should listen to good men, as long as their words are given by the power of the Holy Ghost, then you can hearken to the flesh. Then you can hearken to the precepts of men when they are given by the power of the Holy Ghost. But First and foremost, Christ is the Savior. Christ is the one actively involved in our lives. He is the one that will tell us when and what to do. And when we do that, everything else falls by the wayside. And we will slowly and surely be stripped of all the false doctrines, all the false understandings. We will, <laughs> we will all come to realize that Nephi was bound 
not necessarily to a mast, but he was bound that he couldn't move, those things start to come. And it's not always easy. Sometimes those things that we need to let go of are strong traditions. They are even sometimes misrepresentations of the scriptures, purposeful misrepresentations. The doctrine of men mingled with the scriptures to, to obfuscate the truth, to keep you from it. This world is, it's broken. All right. It talked going back to what I talked about a couple weeks ago about the Phoenix. This world on the current course it is, is destined for destruction. That's the way it is. Now it, that, uh, I'm just talking scientifically. Uh, it also is headed for destruction because of how the people living on it are acting. It is moving towards a cleansing. All right. And so let me give my admonition here for all of us to repent and return to our savior. If we have strayed from trusting in him, if we have strayed from putting our whole selves upon the altar before him, putting ourselves spiritually in order with him, it is not too late. We can still return to him. We can look at the things, you know, and I'm talking you know, there's the base level things, the things that we do wrong, but let's go deeper than that because that's just grabbing the weed at the surface level. We need to go down to our very centers where we harbor this idea that we are in full control of our lives. <laughs> Not to say that we don't have agency, but the fact that we harbor this prideful, stubborn resoluteness that we need to do things our way, that the things that make us happy the things, our traditions, our, the way we've lived is the only way we can live. And we don't want to give up certain things because it would mean hard aspects of our lives to change. We need to be able to put those fully on the altar. Say, Heavenly Father, I want to do everything you want me to do. Give me a direction and allow me to move forward and be a force to act for good in your name. The closer we get to doing that and letting go of the stuff, letting go of our idols, uh, the happier we'll be, the more founded on Christ we will be, and we'll realize the things that we are holding on to we never really needed to begin with, that they were just placeholder for the actual truth and light of our Savior. <clears throat> time isn't out, but time is running short. We've, we have sufficient time given to us that we can repent and return to our Savior. Please, please take some time tonight. You know, pause it right now if you feel up to it. And pray to Heavenly Father and ask what you have need to repent of. What, give, you know, ask for a list of things to work on today to start moving in harmony with him. I promise you'll get a list. I promise the spirit will speak to you. And when you have that connection with the savior, nothing can fulfill that void. Nothing will activate you and get you to be 
motivated to do what the Lord and Savior wants you to do more than hearing his voice in your life. You are entitled to that. That's what it meant, or that's what it means when the Lord said that we will provide a Savior for them as we counseled in the beginning. That's what we're talking about. Christ is not only just, not only the Savior because of taking the whole mantle of sin upon him and carrying it on his back alone, but he is the Savior because he actively works in each one of our lives to tell us what we need to do in any given moment to work towards salvation. I love him. I'm grateful for my relationship with him. I'm so glad, even though it's been very difficult to gone through everything I've gone through recently, because it's the price I've paid to hear his voice day to day. It's the price I've paid to actively search in prayer for his revelation and to to weed through the false, dark, sometimes dark masquerading as light, revelations that that Satan tries to pass off as the Savior, because that's his favorite thing to do, to step into the, the false role of Savior and try to impersonate him. I'm I'm so grateful that I've started to see and understand true discernment through prayer and understanding that my foundation is upon Christ and everything I build, though it may be weak and needs renovating from time to time, at least it is on that sure foundation. So with that, please seek his face continually. And I say these things in his holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen.